All right, so it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, Brett Perkins, who, along with just being an awesome guy and a friend of mine, um, he is also a campus minister at the University of Notre Dame. He has a Master of Arts of Theology through the Notre Dame ECHO program. And uh, the big reason we asked him is he is a parishioner at St. Michael's Ukrainian Catholic Church uh, in town here in Mishawaka. Um, so uh, we invited him to come give a perspective of the Eastern Catholic Church, breathe it, we call it breathing with both lungs, which he'll explain a little bit in his talk, um, to help enlighten us on the Eastern Catholic Church. So thank you, Brett. Welcome. Great. Thanks. So it's great to be with you all tonight. Can everybody hear me okay back there? Everybody in the back? Awesome. Thank you. Um, I was going to say, I usually am not used to speaking amplified. So um, normally I would address a group like twice this size with no amplification. So if I blow out anybody's eardrums, I apologize for that. Um, along with apologies, I do have to say I am sorry if anyone is cold out here tonight. Um, for me, um, the summer solstice um, on June 21st is just the start of the countdown to winter time. Woo! And the Holy Spirit arriving. That is awesome. Okay. So I just love the winter. I love the cold. And so I was praying. My biggest concern about tonight was that it was going to be so hot out here on the porch. So I've been praying for like good weather. This to me is really nice summer weather. And I'm sorry if anybody else is really, really uncomfortable and cold tonight. So I guess my prayers were a little too efficacious. Um, so in any case, it is great to be with you. Um, as Sean said, I'm in uh, campus ministry at the University of Notre Dame. Um, I'm originally from a small farm town in central Illinois, um, and then came to Notre Dame for my undergrad, um, and then went to Chicago, worked for a few years, and then came back and have been in campus ministry for the last 12 years. Um, in campus ministry, I direct sacramental preparation. So I actually direct RCIA at Notre Dame, uh, the Notre Dame Short Course, which is another track of, uh, of, of, uh, of sacramental preparation. Um, and then I also work with a ministry like Alpha. If many of you are familiar with Alpha, it's kind of initial proclamation of the gospel to folks who might not be super familiar with, uh, with uh, Christianity. Um, so in any case, it is wonderful to be with you all here tonight. Um, as Sean mentioned, the title of this talk under this guise of sort of unity and diversity is, um, is called Eastern Catholic Breathing with Both Lungs. So what I hope that we can do tonight is actually have a chance to sort of unpack what is this whole like Eastern Catholic thing, which I think is kind of one of the best kept secrets um, in Catholicism uh, in the worldwide church. Um, but before we do that, I want to unpack just a little bit about this breathing with both lungs, um, which is uh, kind of our subtitle for tonight. That came from uh, Pope St. John Paul II. In 1995, he wrote an encyclical called Ut Unum Sent, um, that they might be one. And in that document, it really lays out the church's vision for ecumenism. How does the church relate with other Christians who aren't in full communion with the Catholic Church? And of special focus, the Pope really um, dives into the, the Eastern churches, um, both those Eastern churches who are separated um, brethren, um, those who are members of the Eastern Orthodox churches or Oriental Orthodox churches, and then those Eastern Catholics who are in the full communion, in full communion with the Catholic church. Um, so what the Pope said in that document was that the church must breathe with her two lungs, East and West, as in the first thousand years of Christianity. The vision of the full communion to be sought is that of unity in legitimate diversity. Unity in legitimate diversity. That is, sister churches, Catholic and Orthodox, um, together in one um, universal church. 
So what I'd like to talk about tonight in our session is about Eastern Catholicism. I won't, unfortunately, be able to unpack Eastern Catholicism. We're going to talk about Eastern Catholicism, but not expose you to Eastern Catholicism. Really, it's kind of along the same lines as, have you ever tried to explain to somebody who's not Catholic, what does it mean to be a Catholic Christian? Yeah? How many of you have tried that before? Right? You kind of, if, if you're like me, you kind of develop a certain script, maybe, that you sort of engage and try to maybe expose people because there's just, like, so much, right? It's like diving into the deep end of the pool. Like, where do you even start, right? Um, obviously, with Eastern Christianity as a whole, um, it's kind of hard to grasp from the outside, a lot like, a lot like the Western church, a lot like the Roman church. Um, we're talking about the ancient Christian Church of the East, a church with its own great history of art and architecture, of liturgical poetry, of, um, of, of just theology and beauty, um, much like the Western lung of the church. And so it's really going to be difficult to dive too much into and really expose you to all of the beauty of the church, especially when we're at Villa McCree on the patio, right? Like, we're not at church. We're not celebrating the divine liturgy, which is the Eastern term for the mass. Um, and so it's going to be a little difficult for that. Um, it's a lot like, in my mind, kind of like a child's toy top, right? Everybody knows what a top is. I could write a nice talk about like explaining a top, explaining the joy it brings to a child, maybe describe its artistic um, decorations and everything. Um, I could tell you the history of tops. I could tell you like you know, what the future prospects, the top industry might be. But what is the one thing that I cannot communicate to you without you doing yourself? Spinning it, right? Like, you've got to just spin it yourself to understand a top, right? That's a lot like what we're going to be doing tonight. So I apologize in advance. It's going to be somewhat incomplete. But I will have a suggestion for you all to better understand Eastern Catholicism that will come up toward the end of the presentation. So... With that, I just want to share with you a little bit about how I ended up having this kind of random exposure um, and became a parishioner um, at St. Michael's Ukrainian Byzantine Catholic Church in Mishawaka. Okay, so I am not Ukrainian. I am not uh, by birth a Byzantine Catholic. In fact, I wasn't by birth any Catholic. I'll tell you about that in a second. I actually am a convert to Catholicism. I grew up in the Methodist Church um, in this small town in central Illinois, came to Notre Dame, and I went through the RCIA process at Notre Dame as a sophomore and to become a Roman Catholic. I'm German-Irish by background, so definitely not anywhere near Ukraine. Um, and so I, um, it was actually during RCIA that I had my first exposure to Eastern Catholicism. Now, that seems a little strange, right? Like, RCIA, typically, you wouldn't think would be doing much exposure to, like, the eastern lung of the church. However, what happened during that session was we had a talk on the church. There was a presentation that was done by a priest at Notre Dame on the, the, what, what is the Catholic church. And it was during that presentation that the priest actually mentioned a few different things. First off, he talked about, well, what is the fullness of a church? What does that mean? And it was a question that none of us had really thought about before. What is the fullness of the church? Well, he defined it as the local church, the local church of lay faithful who are joined with their priests to the local bishop. Like that, in essence, is the fullness of the church made manifest diocese by diocese around the world. All of them in union with all the other Catholic bishops and dioceses throughout the world, all in ultimate union with whom? The Pope, right? Bishop of Rome, right? As the guarantee of that unity. 
the priest also went on to talk about what is a rite, R-I-T-E. Well, now, some of us, we were in the rite of Christian initiation of adults, but we never really talked about what the heck those words mean. So rite, what is that rite? What does that mean? Well, a rite, he defined, is the constellation of ways that a church lives, celebrates, and prays the Catholic faith, okay? Again, that constellation of ways that a church lives, prays, and celebrates that Catholic faith, especially when it comes to celebrating the sacraments, okay? And he told us about that there's a variety of different rites. In fact, there's seven rites that are shared among, and this was flabbergasting to me, 23 churches that make up the Catholic church. And we're like, well, what do you mean? All we'd ever, I mean, we're, we're there to join the Catholic church. In our minds, it was kind of monolithical, just one big church. He said, well, actually, the church is indeed one church, but it's 23 churches that make up the one church. Much like our God is one God in three persons, so is the Catholic church one church in 23 unique individual churches. Um, each tr- Eastern church, like the Roman church, is, a full, is the fullness of the church of God, um, but all of them are united with this universal church. And Vatican II actually declared that not one of these rites or churches is su- to be superior to the other. We'll talk about in a little bit, as far as numbers go, there is a certain superiority, okay? Definitely. But we'll talk about that here in a second. So our plan for tonight, um, uh, or I should say, so for me, this priest kind of introducing us to the Eastern churches, he said, well, actually, all of you should be familiar with this. There's actually two, at that time, two Eastern Catholic churches in the South Bend area, and you should go and visit one. So the inquiring mind that I was, the next weekend, off I went to explore St. Michael's. And I'll tell you, I went to liturgy there. I wish I could say it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever encountered. It was lovely, but it was completely isolating. I felt like I was right back going to the Roman church for the very first time. I'm like, what? How does everyone know what's going on? And how is this Catholic? I have no idea. So it was a little isolating that way, but I did find something attractive there. Um, didn't really think much more about it. Months go by, I think maybe the next school year, I went back now that I was actually Catholic and could celebrate the sacraments there. Um, so I was able to go and, and receive um, communion there, uh, which was a wonderful thing. And then again, didn't really think much more about it. Like I said, I moved to Chicago, came back, and uh, when I got back to South Bend, I started to look for parishes. And I um, went to a lot of different um, Roman Catholic parishes in South Bend, Mishawaka, Granger. And then the challenge for me was my work oftentimes took me away on weekends for campus ministry stuff, retreats and other things. So I found it really hard to get involved and get to know a lot of people in a parish, especially a giant one. Well, then I remembered St. Michael's, and that was 10 years ago. I never left. Um, And it's a very small community, probably 50 or 60 people there on a given Sunday, if it's packed. Um, And so um, those of you who have been to St. Michael's, you know what I'm talking about. Um, But in any case, it's a wonderful community. everybody's got a story of kind of what brought them there. And I would say the majority of the people aren't actually ethnic Ukrainians, which is kind of interesting um, as far as the parish goes. But all of that to say, that's kind of what led me into this sort of love affair with the Eastern churches, that I've been really inspired by this Eastern lung of the church. And part of what I hope my ministry can be about is to help other people to explore that, especially those of you in this room who I'm guessing are predominantly Roman Catholics, um, is to be able to have a better sense of what are these Eastern churches and how do they, what difference do they make to us today in 21st century America, okay? So we'll talk more about that. To give you a little outline for the night tonight, what I'd like to do is first off talk about the past. 
where these churches come from historically, um, and how are there these actually 23 different ways of being Catholic. I'd like to talk about the present. What's the inter- interplay between three aspects that will help you understand the landscape? That is right, jurisdiction, and culture. Those three elements to understand those will help you understand the landscape of Eastern Catholicism. We'll also talk about what, are, what do Byzantine Catholic churches look like, as well as what makes, what's the differences in, in kind of beliefs and rights between Romans and Byzantines. And lastly, we'll talk about the future. Where do we go from here? What, why, why, what's the future for the Byzantine churches? Um, I think there's a lot of glimmers of hope. There's also some present darkness um, that a lot of the Eastern churches are facing um, just by virtue of kind of where they are located in the world, um, places that aren't necessarily that friendly to Christians in general. So in any case, so we'll talk about all those things. Our focus tonight will really be on the Byzantine rite of the Catholic Church, which is shared among 13 of those Catholic churches, um, just because that's what I've had experience with and what I know. Um, so all that to say, um, I think that's kind of our, our game plan for today. Sound good to everybody? Okay, awesome. You guys still both me back there in the back? You guys are like almost an Osceola, I feel like, back there, right? Like almost, almost. In any case, so as I said, my common misunderstanding when I joined RCIA was that there was sort of this monolithical way of being Catholic. There was Catholic is synonymous with Roman Catholic, Latin Rite Catholic Church, okay? Um, these two are, in fact, not synonymous, um, and though much, and throughout much of the world, and in the United States, most people know the Roman rite of the Catholic Church. And definitely that's the predominant thing. But we're going to unpack this. So where did all this unity and diversity come from? Where did all this diversity come from? Friends, bear with me. We're going to take a quick romp through 2,000 years of church history. Are you ready? Yes? Awesome. Let's go. Okay. So what happens? We've got the Jesus event. The resurrection takes place, Right? We've got this band of 11 um, disciples, Ad uh, Matthias. We've got 12 apostles now. Um, they are, they've ex- encountered the risen Lord. And they are like, they're like just passionate about that encounter, that relationship, uh, that new relationship, restored relationship with him. However, they're not yet ready to be sent out. What event has to happen to really catch them on fire? Hint, hint, fire. What event has to happen to catch them on fire? Anyone? Pentecost. Awesome. Okay. So Pentecost happens. They are sent out now into this world and they are going around sharing the core of what it means to be a Christian, the core of this relationship with Jesus Christ. As they traveled throughout the world, they went in and went throughout the Middle East and then spread into Europe and Asia, etc. But they went about enculturating that one core faith. They brought that faith, the core of that relationship with Jesus into dialogue with the culture in that place right? So that they could redeem elements of culture and maybe suppress other elements that weren't in keeping with Christian faith. So where did the apostles go? Well, we know that Peter ended up in Rome, right? Peter went to Rome, but he stopped somewhere beforehand and planted another church. Anybody know where the church is? Somebody said over here? Antioch. Antioch, exactly. So he stopped in Antioch and planted the Christian church there. Then he went on to Rome. We have Andrew who made his way up to the little village town of Byzantium, um, later became Constantinople, the head of the Eastern Church, uh, or the, the, the capital of the Eastern Empire, and now today modern Istanbul, right? Istanbul, not Constantinople. Um, then we have, um, we also have others like Thomas, who, the doubter, who went all the way as far as India, tradition says. Bartholomew and Jude Thaddeus, they both went to Armenia, tradition says, and founded the church there. So they established communities as they went. 
As they did so, they obviously needed leaders for the church, so they ordained other men to carry on that mission, right? And those became the bishops of those local places. Um, Indeed, they were all in communion with, um, with each other, but they were also in communion with one very important figure, that is Peter, um, and indeed his successors, all of them, the Pope of Rome, who was the first among equals of all of the bishops. So those ancient Christian centers besides Rome included Jerusalem, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, Armenia, these great historic places where Christianity kind of grew up. Now, many of them, after the church was planted there, they kind of grew up in isolation. Obviously, they couldn't really email. They couldn't call one another, see how they're doing things. What's your Eucharistic prayer like over there? You know, they kind of had to, like, depend upon the Holy Spirit to be guiding these different churches. Well, as time went on, the cities grew, and certain larger cities kind of took over, and and not not took over in a negative way, but just sort of exerted influence, ritually speaking, on the neighboring towns as well as entire regions. Well, friends, this is really where the different rites came from in the church. These different local churches celebrating the one true faith, the core of the faith, but letting it sort of grow up within the culture of that place. Each city and region would then have, in a sense, their own rite. Now, we especially see that in the celebration of the sacraments, the same um, ways that the church, um, uh, through matter, was able to um, bring about that that true life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's kind of where we, that was sort of the lay of the land. Now, of course, we see the creeping in of division start to take place. One of the first things that we have to know is in 451, the Council of Chalcedon led to the first split. At that point, over a dispute regarding the the nature of Christ in the incarnate Christ, whether he had one nature or, as the, the rest of the church believed, two natures, we see a split, the Oriental, what became known as the Oriental Orthodox broke at that point. So we had the Coptic, Ethiopian, Eritrean, Syrian, and Armenian churches that went and sort of departed communion with the rest of the church. Fast forward another 600 years, and we get to an event that I'm assuming most of you have heard of, the Great East-West Schism. Anybody know what year that was? Good job. 1050. Okay, I'm going to sit down. Somebody else. Over. 1054. 1054 was the East-West Schism. Um, and that was after much turmoil and frequent spats between East and West, between Rome and Constantinople. Some of it political, some of it theological. Um, there was the sad event of Christmas Day, 1054. The Roman legates from uh, that were sent by the Pope, the cardinals came and laid a bull of excommunication on the altar of the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. Now, for those of you that know the Hagia Sophia, um, now a museum, was converted to a mosque. Before that was a church. It was like the Vatican of the East, right? Um, so the papal legates lay this bull of excommunication there. The patriarch Michael at the time returns the favor and excommunicates the Roman church. And thus we have what has now been in place for almost a thousand years of division, 1054, um, the Great East-West Schism. So thus became, we came to know what are now what we call the Eastern Orthodox churches, um, communion of churches, um, Byzantine in right, divided along national lines. The Patriarch of Constantinople um, became sort of like the de facto figurehead um, leader there, though without the universal jurisdiction that the Pope has in the West. And then the Church of West became known as the Catholic Church, right? Um, So we have the Orthodox and Catholic So, fast forward a few more years, 1204. There were lots of attempts to reunify the churches. The definitive split really took place in 1204 with the Fourth Crusade. Thus, Latin crusaders from Rome come, and what do they do? Great, smart guys, really smart. 
for Christian unity, they sack Constantinople. They destroy fellow Christian churches. Um, they rape and they pillage, etc. Um, not at the order of the Pope, thanks be to God, um, but actually, like, just kind of what, this is what happened, right? Um, at that point, like, this, this, the split is definitive. I tell you, it's 800 years now ha- afterwards, but there are still those monks, especially in the East, that will bring that up as a barrier to reunification. You know, it's a long memory in the church. Um, 1453, Constantinople falls to the Ottomans. Um, the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire is, is basically destroyed. We then get to the beautiful Council of Trent in 1945, respond to the Protestant Reformation. Pope St. Pius V thus implements the right of the city of Rome to the entire Western Church. So any of those individual differences between local cities, all of that sort of ceased to exist with a few minor exceptions we won't go into, but really ceased to exist as of the Council of Trent. Thus, us in South Bend, Indiana, for the most part, if you're Catholic, you are... Roman Catholic, exactly. So that's kind of as a result of the Council of Trent. However, from those splits of 451 and 1054 to the present, various uh, groups of what were separated Christians have come back into union with Rome, okay? At various times for various different reasons. They come back into and adhere to the Catholic faith while retaining their ritual and cultural heritage, Thus, the Eastern Catholic churches, 22 of them in number, each of them with a corresponding Orthodox church, uh, for the most part. Um, They um, comprise 23 churches within the Catholic church, and as I said from the Council of Trent, that suppression that took place, that's why we only have one Roman or Western church. Okay? Make sense to everybody? That's our romp through history. I think we'll, we'll kind of uh, call it quits there. However, from those, from that time of the, of the last century or the last millennium or so where these different branches have come back into the church, um, we really see, um, sort of the encroachment of a lot of Western Catholicism and sort of the traditions of the Latin rite into some of those now in communion Eastern Catholic churches. So things that were never part of their heritage were sort of foisted upon them. An interesting aspect of Vatican II, there's actually a document, many people don't realize, in Vatican II, on the Eastern Catholic churches. And that document really calls the Eastern churches back to their original traditions, shed kind of the Western things that we Latinizers sort of foisted upon you and go back to your traditions. So many people kind of look at Vatican II and like it was sort of the more moving in the progressive direction. For the Eastern churches, it actually called them back to the tradition, uh, which was kind of unique there. So the current state of affairs, ready for this? Of the 1.2 billion Catholics in the world, 94% are Roman Catholics. 94%. The remaining 6%, around 50 million people, are split among the other 22 ways of being Catholic. Now you wonder why you haven't met any (laughs) Eastern Catholics, right? Um, Outside of certain pockets here in, in, in the U.S. So does that make sense to everybody? Does that give a little bit of background, hopefully, about where these different churches come from? Everybody with me still? Osceola? You guys back there with me? Okay, awesome. All right, so now let's talk a little bit about this present. Can I get a couple volunteers to pass out some things? Oh my gosh, awesome. Do you want to help? Any and all help is welcome. So there you go. Runner to get back to Yola for sure. So. Um, so a little bit about kind of the present situation in the church. Um, I want to talk first off about sort of like Jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is one of the three ways, I said, to help kind of make a sense of the landscape of Catholicism, of Eastern Catholicism. Jurisdiction. With whom do you share communion? Okay? 
That's what jurisdiction is, basically. Are you, like, in communion with the Pope in Rome, or are you in communion more with, like, the Patriarch of Constantinople? That's sort of this issue of jurisdiction, and that's where we get these terms Catholic and Orthodox, right? But there's a problem with using those terms, right? There's a problem with using the terms Catholic and Orthodox only to describe this sort of jurisdiction. Um, Catholic, of course, meaning what? Universal, right? And Orthodox, how would you define that word? Right believing, right worshiping, right? Okay, so for those of you in the room who are capital C Catholic of the jurisdiction in communion with Rome, would you not also consider yourselves a member of a small o Orthodox Christian community? Right? Like right believing, right worshiping, yeah? I hope every Catholic in the room is nodding. Yes, you should. You should. You should agree with that. Okay. Likewise, members of the capital O Orthodox churches, divided mainly along sort of national lines, but all in communion with one another, would they not see themselves as part of a small c Catholic universal communion of churches? Yes? Okay. Yes, indeed. Indeed. That is the case. So obviously the labels can make it a little bit difficult. Indeed, many Eastern Catholics consider themselves Orthodox, with a capital O, in communion with Rome. Orthodox in communion with Rome, which really captures, in a sense, who they are, how they practice, how, 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 um, how they worship. So indeed, that's, um, that is a key aspect that we need to kind of clarify. Additionally, keys to understanding, as I said, this intersection of right, culture, and jurisdiction. What hope we all have now? is a little handout that I put together um, that is hopefully just a way without overwhelming you because there's a lot of information there. Please do not try to read it all right now. There will not be a quiz. Um, this document really tries to give you a basic understanding of the whole landscape of the church, of the Catholic church throughout the world. So as I said, there's seven different rites that are shared among 23 different churches. There's six of those that we would call Eastern, the Eastern rites. Those are Byzantine, Maronite, East Syrian, West Syrian, Armenian, and Coptic. Those are the six rites of the East. Of the West, what's the rite that we have? Roman. How many rites in the West? One, exactly. Okay. So all of those rites you'll see highlighted in yellow on this document, okay? So you can see the major classifications. And then what I tried to do was to sort this out so you could see, historically speaking, where did these all come from? by looking at the different historical centers of Christianity throughout the world, okay? So hopefully this sort of gives you some um, indication of that. Um, as I mentioned, the Byzantine Catholic churches, you can see, are shared among 13. The Byzantine rite is shared among 13 different unique churches within the Catholic Church, um, as well as the Eastern Orthodox churches. Those are all Byzantine churches as well. Um, the Maronite rite is very small, only one. Only one church in the Maronite rite, um, but very ancient. Um, the, um, the uniqueness of culture you really see sort of spread among these different churches, especially among the Byzantines. You see them kind of divide along these national lines. And if you were to visit a Byzantine church, just out of curiosity, how many of you have been to an Eastern Catholic church, especially the Byzantine right? Oh my gosh, this is awesome. I really am going to call this quits. You guys, you guys know this stuff. This is great. Um, so in any case, those churches of the East, of the Byzantine right, you see the cultural elements sort of come through in things like the, um, like the language, obviously, in the music. So you'd see like the differences between like the Melkite Byzantines, who would be more sort of like Arabic or Middle Eastern sounding in the music, versus like the Ukrainians that would be much more Slavic right? So you see those elements of culture come through, even though both churches share the one Byzantine rite, okay? Um, you also see the differences of jurisdiction. What I tried to spell out there is for every Eastern 
Catholic Church, I tried to note on there in parentheses at the end, what's the corresponding church that's not in communion with Rome? Okay, so you can get a sense of, again, each one, for the most part, has a corresponding Eastern Orthodox Church that wouldn't be in communion with Rome. Does that all make sense? Okay, is this a helpful resource document? Hopefully, again, something to file away for later or whatever, you know, just something so you can get a sense of this. I know it can be very confusing, but again, that intersection of culture, of right, and of jurisdiction really helps to kind of lay the land of, of what we see there in the church. You'll notice there's a bunch of different icons that I included, those images that are on that handout, and I tried to show a quintessential, a typical um, icon of each of the different rites along with those rights on that sheet. So you see that famous image of Our Lady of Vladimir on the front. That's a very like quintessential um, Byzantine icon that came out of, um, out of Russia. On the very back, you'll notice the top icon there um, associated with the Coptic church is actually, you notice the Coptic icons are very vivid, like the colors are very vivid. Um, this is a recent icon that was written by um, members of the Coptic community in honoring, anybody guess what we see there? Martyrs, right? It was the 21 Coptic Christians who were martyred by ISIS, right? Um, so you see this icon is very recent um, as far as that goes. Um, you'll also notice on there, another thing I, was, I like to point out is the, the very last um, Catholic church, the Eritrean Catholic church, um, that is a member, it's the Coptic rite, um, the very last one on the very back page. That was actually just established in January of 2015 by Pope uh, Francis. So you can see that, like, for some, this is very new, um, that there's continual development in some of this, uh, this history, okay? Um, so with that in mind, hopefully this is something you can file away for later on. Now, um, what are some of the elements of right that you will see when you visit a Byzantine church? Can I have some runners up here again? Okay. Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm right back in RCIA with all the handouts. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay, so the document that's coming around now just gives you kind of an outline um, on two pages of what a typical Byzantine Rite Catholic Church looks like. Okay, so for those of you who have been to one before, this will be kind of like naming perhaps some of the things that you saw but didn't know exactly what was going on. Um, for the others of you who haven't been to one, hopefully this gives kind of a quintessential vision of one. Um, and I actually borrowed this from a book that was... Um, uh, Welcome to the Orthodox Church uh, by a woman by the name of Federica Matthews Green. And um, this actually shows very similar, very much um, the similarity. Obviously, two different jurisdictions, but all sharing the one Byzantine rite, uh, the 13 Eastern Catholic churches and many Orthodox churches as well. So when you look at that document, let's start out with the side that is the, um, the entire church, the structure of a Byzantine church. So you'll notice there that there's kind of three main areas to the main bulk of the church. There's the nave, the sanctuary, and then there's this kind of thing between the sanctuary and the nave, right? The iconostasis, the icon screen, and yeah, just the English version of, of that word, um, or icon stand, I should say. So you have, in a sense, the, the architecture of the church is really meant to communicate this, that the entire cosmos is sort of represented in the one church building. You have heaven represented in the sanctuary, which is usually the most decorated. And then you have the nave where the congregation sits that represents earth. And then you have this screen that kind of obscures your vision, right, of what's going on in the sanctuary. Um, and that screen kind of represents the reality of, right, like our vision of heaven while we are on earth is sort of obscured, right? Like we can see glimpses of it, but we can't see the fullness 
of what it will be like to be face-to-face with God this side of heaven. So that's sort of the theology of why we have this big screen of icons in the Eastern churches. It actually has the same role as like the did in the Roman church. Um, and it, but in the East, it just got higher and higher and got, had all these icons and images put all of it. These icons meant to be windows into heaven. Okay. Um, what else do you notice there? Perhaps even looking over at the Byzantine sanctuary detail on the other side. Um, you can see a little bit of some of these different elements that are present in, in the church. You'll notice the, uh, the altar is freestanding. It's not up against the wall. Um, so the priest can go all the way around it. The tabernacle sits right on the altar, and the tabernacle is typically in the shape of the church in which it sits, okay? So that the, just as the church building holds the body of Christ, that is the people, so the church on the altar, the tabernacle, holds the body of Christ in the Eucharist, right? Kind of neat that way. Um, You'll notice the menorah, number one on there, um, the seven-branch candlestick, right from the temple of Jerusalem, right? Um, this image of, of, of the, um, the, the menorah that would be um, typical there. Um, you'll see this sort of off to the left there, there's a table of preparation um, where the, um, there's sort of a, a preceding liturgy of preparation that goes before the public liturgy begins. Um, so rather than liturgy of the Eucharist, liturgy of the word that we have in the Roman rite, there's sort of a three-part celebration of the Byzantine rite. The first part is the liturgy of preparation that takes place over there to the left. Um, but in any case, you can kind of see there um, some of the elements. You'll notice that the, the icon screen is sort of, um, there are ways of passing back and forth. The royal doors, the priest alone is the only one who ever goes through those, the priest or the deacon accompanied by the priest. Um, and then the servers use the sides, the doors, which I think you can see flipping back over to the other side. You'll see that a couple of those icons open up and are actually doors. The servers would use those um, by means of access uh, to the, into the sanctuary. Um, and then the priest, um, yeah, the priest sort of celebrates the liturgy, obviously, in the, in, the, um, uh, in the sanctuary, but kind of there's lots of processions and that kind of thing. So that's, again, where you really need to go back and, and to, uh, uh, to spin the top sort of by going to a Byzantine liturgy. So all that to say, um, let's talk for a moment now um, about, oh, another thing you'll notice there is seating, right? You don't see pews. Uh, typically, Byzantine churches would not have pews. If they do, it's kind of a later Latinization that kind of crept in. Um, uh, and especially in the U.S., most churches would have pews. Um, but indeed, that's another thing that you'll see there. Um, so let's do a little bit of interactive part now before we get into this, what the future of the church looks like. Um, want to talk, um, let's just play a little game called You Might Be a Byzantine Catholic If. Okay. And I'd like, what I'd like to do is I'd like to pose like a completion of that sentence. And then I would love to get a volunteer who can kind of help to tease that out. And it doesn't have to be one person, but like anybody can kind of throw out answers there. So you might be a Byzantine Catholic, and this will just help us understand like the differences of right between Byzantines and Romans. You might be a Byzantine Catholic if your Roman Catholic friends tell you you make the sign of the cross backwards. <laughs> Any Easterners here that like to, yep, uh-huh, yep, okay, there we go. Okay, so... Give me a little bit of background there. What's up with that? How do Byzantines make the sign of the cross? Opposite. Opposite. Right shoulder first, left shoulder. And the hand, there's a symbolism in the way the hand is held. So it's not open palm. It's three fingers together for representing the Trinity. Two fingers, the last two fingers together representing the two natures of Christ, human and divine, brought to the palm to represent God becoming man in the incarnation. All of that in just the way you hold your hand, people, honestly. So you hold your hand like that, and then it's crossing to the right shoulder, then the left. How in the heavens did that develop? Anybody know? 
Left-handed. That's a good guess. Left-handed priest. Left-handed priest. The amazing thing, friends, is that the priest blesses the people the same way in East and West. It all has to do with whether you follow the priest's hand the way he would see it or whether you would follow his hand directly, okay? But it became this big thing of, like, you would identify as Roman if you crossed left first, then right with an open palm, or you identified as Eastern, closed hand to the right shoulder first, then the left. I would encourage you all to become ambi-crossers. Like, you should be able to cross both ways that way, right? So it's great. Awesome. Um, And during the divine liturgy, you make the sign of the cross every time the name of the Trinity is invoked, which is roughly every 30 seconds, okay? So um, a lot of Romans, I think, maybe double the number of times they've ever made the sign of the cross in their life after one Byzantine liturgy, right? Um, And also, you just make the sign of the cross whenever else you want to as a Byzantine Catholic, really. Um, So in any case, um, you might be a Byzantine Catholic if... Your parish has a cantor and choir director, but has never had an organist. What's the point there? Sorry? It's a cappella. Exactly. It's not because they can't afford a pipe organ, um, but it's in fact because the liturgy is sung a cappella, just the human voice. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things, especially in the West or Eastern Slavic churches, that there's oftentimes um, harmonies and stuff that the congregation will sing in four parts, um, but with no accompaniment. Um, and I'd say, like, sometimes it's like a lot of Roman Catholics are a little thrown off by that, right? Like, you know, it's just definitely not used to it. Um, uh, you might be a Byzantine Catholic if you've never received Holy Communion in the hand. What's up with that? Mark? Right. So the body and blood are consecrated separately. Um, we actually use a loaf of leavened bread. Okay, so in the, in the West, the unleavened bread is a symbol of Jesus presiding at the, what? The Passover, right? In the, in the East, the custom was to add yeast as a symbol of the rising of the bread being like Christ rising from the tomb in the resurrection, right? A difference of right. Same belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, different way. Consecration separately, but the body of Christ goes into the chalice then and is distributed via a spoon, Okay, so when you receive communion, there's no reception in the hand because that would be really messy. So it's it by the spoon. And you don't really close your mouth around so much as like the priest drops it in your mouth. Okay. He, is, he, he does check your fillings while he's doing that. Yes, indeed. Um, you might be a Byzantine Catholic if you bring your infant son or daughter up to the altar with you to receive communion and the priest readily gives your son or daughter communion. What's up with that? In the back, Andrew. That's right, because in the East, all the sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, all together at baptism, okay? So the infant is baptized, chrismated, or confirmed, and then is given a little spoonful of precious blood. And from that point on, they receive Holy Communion. Now, for me, as a catechist, as somebody who's, like, educating people, hopefully, in in faith— I Like, all the catechesis that takes place for a kid, it's never preparing for First Holy Communion, uh-uh, because they've already received it, right? It's not preparing for confirmation when they're in middle school or high school because they've already pre- received it. It's always unpacking, right? It's unpacking um, what they've already received. Also, priests are the normal minister of confirmation in the East, not the bishop, okay? Um, um, you might be a Byzantine Catholic if your priest brings his wife and children to parish functions. What's the point there? Yes? Did you raise your hand? Oh, oh, would you like to take a A guess? No? Anyone? Anyone? Yes? 
Yes, indeed. So it's always, we have to like, we have to use really particular language here. So in the East, they will ordain married men to the priesthood. However, priests do not marry in the East. Okay? So it all has to do with the, the order of the sacraments. So again, if a person is married, a man is married, he can be ordained in the Eastern church. However, once a priest is ordained, whether if they're single, they would remain single. If they are married, they would remain married. If their spouse dies, they would not take another. Bishops are always chosen from among celibate clergy. Okay? Um, also, if you, you might be a Byzantine Catholic, if you have a devotion to Mary, but you've never prayed a rosary. What? Oh my gosh. Anybody? What do we have there? The rosary never really got to the East. It's a Western tradition, right? Our Lady gave the rosary to St. Dominic, right? So Dominic was not in Kiev or in Moscow. He was where? Actually, I don't really remember. Spain? Is that right? <laughs> Italy? <laughs> never mind. It's not important. Okay, so moving right along. <laughs> you might be a Byzantine Catholic. If when your friend asks you what you did for Lent this past year, you ask, which Lent? <laughs> That's right. Anybody guess on this one? What's up with which Lent? Yes, exactly. There are indeed four Lenten periods over the course of the liturgical year. How excited is everyone to think about Byzantine Christianity now? <laughs> right? Right? Exactly. Okay, so here's a quick outline. First, the Philip's Fast is kind of synonymous with Roman Advent, okay? And that's a period of 40 days of preparation before Christmas, before Nativity. Sounds familiar. Um, Great Lent then takes place synonymous kind of with Lent in the Roman Rite, except it begins not on Ash Wednesday, but on... Clean Monday. Clean Monday. When all of leaven, all of the fasting and unfriendly foods have to be out of the kitchen by the Monday. Typically in the Gregorian calendar, it's the Monday before Ash Wednesday. Okay, then we have the Apostles Fast, which is actually ending um, tonight because tomorrow is the feast of Saints Peter and Paul. So there's a fast of anywhere from eight days to six weeks long, depending on when Pentecost falls, um, leading up to the feast tomorrow of Saints Peter and Paul. And lastly, there's the Dormition fast, two weeks from August 1st to August 15th, leading up to the celebration of the Dormition or Assumption in the West of Mary. Okay? Four Lenten periods. Exciting. Yes. Okay. In general, most Byzantine Catholics also fast. Um, they abstain from meat on every Friday of the year, and also a lot will do something on Wednesdays as well. Um, it is kind of interesting with all of those fasting periods, most, um, uh, it, there's not sort of like the legalistic sort of like, you must do this to keep the fast as we have in the West. It's more like in the East, if you were to fast, like you really give up um, meat, you give up um, dairy, you give up oil, and you give up wine. Like that's the full Lenten fast, right? Okay, so that's what, like, the monks in the monasteries do, but most people, average, would probably give up meat, maybe dairy, um, and probably on Fridays and Wednesdays during Lent. Um, so there's not as much, like, everybody has to do this. It's more like personal devotion, okay? The other thing is, in the Eastern Church, they add more alleluias during Lent. Crazy. No talk of the A word that we can't talk about during Lent, right? So, yeah, that doesn't exist in the East. Lastly, okay, you, you might be a Byzantine Catholic if your Byzantine divine liturgy has been accused of being wordy. Yeah, wordiness. Anybody want to take a stab at that? It is long, right? The liturgy that, that it preceded the Byzantine was actually five hours long, the liturgy of St. James. 
St. Basil the Great shortened that down to two and a half hours. St. John Chrysostom down to an hour and a half, right? It's like, we've got to move this along, people. But as a great exhibit of that, I just want to share with you one little thing here. The, um, the prayer that you, rec- you, you, that you say right before receiving Holy Communion in East and West. Think about that for a second. What do we say in the right? Lord, I am not worthy. Exactly. Okay, that took maybe about five seconds, right? So the Byzantine equivalent of that, I'd like to just share that with you, okay? It will involve no fewer than six signs of the cross during it at appropriate times. Said by everyone right before receiving communion, Lord, I believe and profess that you are truly Christ, the Son of the living God, who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the first. O Son of God, receive me today as a partaker of your mystical supper, for I will not reveal your mystery to your enemies as did Judas. But like the thief, I acknowledge you. Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Remember me, Master, when you come into your kingdom. Remember me, Holy One, when you come into your kingdom. Lord, do not let the partaking of your holy mysteries be for my judgment or condemnation, but instead for the healing of my soul and body. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, cleanse me of my sins and have mercy on me. I have sinned many times. Forgive me, O Lord. (laughs) Right? It is, it is, it is. It's like, if there's a way of shortening or taking the red pin out and being like, we don't need this. Mm-mm, that is not done. That is not done in the East. That is, that is good. Well, very good. Well done, everyone. Give yourselves a round of applause for participating. That is great. That is great. Awesome. So now we look to the future. Where is the future of, what is the future of the Eastern churches? Um, what are the challenges and opportunities faced by these different communities? Well, first off, one of the realistic um, things is that persecution is a daily reality for almost all of the 22 Eastern Catholic churches in their native lands. Um, many are indeed facing persecution in those lands. I don't know if you happen to see our Sunday Visitor newspaper from this week. Faith, hope amid genocide. In the lands of Iraq and Syria, religious minorities in the Middle East face severe persecution that threatens to erase their 2,000 years of Christian tradition. This is the daily reality. There are almost as many, if not more, Chaldean Catholics, which you'll notice on your list. Those are the native Catholics of Iraq. There are almost as many, if not more, Chaldean Catholics in the Detroit area, specifically Dearborn, Michigan, as there are in all of Iraq. The bishop, the patriarch of the Chaldeans, is the patriarch of a church that is mainly on the other side of the world. It is the fact. Um, In the 1940s, under Stalin, the Ukrainian Byzantine Catholic Church was forcibly reunited with the Russian Orthodox Church. Almost 2,000 clergy bishops were faced the gulags in Siberia, and many of them were martyred. All their possessions, all their churches were seized and became Orthodox, not by choice. Um, They're still working to recover those properties today. Nearly all of those Eastern churches face severe persecution. Also, in the future, a little bit brighter with the eye toward ecumenism, Eastern Catholics are both a bridge and a stumbling block to reunification uh, with the Eastern Orthodox churches. You see this especially, the Eastern Orthodox churches see the Eastern Catholics oftentimes kind of as traitors, right? That they left the Orthodox communion and sort of went back to Rome. A term that's sometimes used, you might have heard of, is uniate. Okay, uniate. How many of you guys have heard that term, uniate, before? U-N-I-A-T-E. Never use that in reference to the Eastern churches because it's kind of seen as a pejorative. That's what the Orthodox sort of call them 
for like they, they were unified kind of thing. Um, however, there are some bright sites. Um, 1964, Pope Paul VI and uh, Patriarch Athenagoras um, from, um, from Constantinople lifted the mutual excommunications from 1054. However, we're still not receiving communion together, right? So that still has to be worked out for the most part. 2014, Pope Francis visited the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople. Um, February of this year, Pope Francis meets with whom? Patriarch Kirill, right, of Moscow. First time in the history since 1054 of the Moscow Patriarch and the Pope meeting. There's definitely ongoing dialogue, but really, friends, if I can ask you to pray for one thing, before the thousandth year anniversary of the East-West Schism in 2054, let the division cease, right? Like, let there be reunification in the church. Um, the Orthodox, as much as they see the Eastern Catholics as sort of traitors, they do watch carefully how they're treated by the Roman hierarchy because they know that's whom they, in a sense, kind of used to be, right? When the church was all sort of unified as one. There's a lot of misunderstanding between the Eastern Catholics and especially in a majority Roman um, country like the U.S. You've got this sort of monolithical viewpoint of the Catholic Church. Um, Eastern Catholics attending Roman Catholic schools, especially in second grade, are oftentimes told, well, you need to prepare for First Holy Communion. What do you mean you've always been receiving communion growing up? No, you haven't. You must not be Catholic then, right? And I'm sure there's been times where kids who have been confirmed as infants are reconfirmed, which we don't believe in, right? They're confirmed again when they're in eighth grade or high school or whatever because they're attending Roman Catholic schools. Um, so just a knowledge of like who these are. Um, only this year was there uh, the allowance made for Eastern Catholics in the United States to ordain married men. Only this year was that actually granted by Rome. It had to actually, people had to go back to their native countries to be able to be ordained if they were married. So there, is, there are elements of that that are challenging. Um, the cultural identity, how does St. Michael's Ukrainian Byzantine Catholic Church that's predominantly Irish, German, French, um, Italian, not really Ukrainian anymore, how do they function and still preserve their cultural heritage for people who aren't necessarily ethnically Ukrainian? And sometimes, how does that cultural um, sort of uh, issue, that element of culture, how can that be a barrier to evangelization? I always think about this with St. Michael's. The church sign says, St. Michael's um, Ukrainian Catholic Church Byzantine Rite. And I wonder how many people have driven by that church and thought, well, I'm not Ukrainian. I could never go there. It's probably in a language I don't understand. It's probably like people that are all like different than I am, right? But there's an example of like, how is, are they able to the gospel effectively? How is our parish able to share the gospel when it can kind of be that culture can sometimes sort of be more of a hindrance than a help, right? Um, so what does this all, just in closing, have to do with you? In, sorry, it cuts out there, doesn't it? Um, I probably, <laughs> something is going on down there. Um, because um, <laughs> um, what does this have to do with you guys in 21st century America? First off, be cognizant of these um, of these communities. This is a major part of of religious of, of the religious players in the world. We've got 1.2 billion Catholics, Romans plus the 22 Easterns. We also have about 300 million Eastern Orthodox in the world. So the vast majority of of Christianity is between the Catholic and Orthodox churches. Um, it's been said that Eastern Christians are the other side of the Roman Catholic soul. Eastern Christians are the other side of the Roman Catholic soul, and vice versa. There's a sense to which many scholars have said that there's a mutual impoverishment 
if the West had had the Easterners as a part of them during the Reformation, they might have been, the West might have been better able to deal with dissent um, that came up as a result of the Reformation. Likewise, if the East had had some of the strength of the West, it might not as often fallen prey to um, despots and um, those who sought to control the church for their own gain. Um, Pope St. John Paul II asked us to be knowledgeable of the Eastern, our Eastern Christian brothers and sisters, both those who are in communion with Rome as well as those who aren't. Um, also, I feel strongly that understanding the richness of the Eastern churches really helps you better understand your own liturgical tradition. Um, it also broadens your horizons of what it means to be Catholic, I think, as well as understanding that legitimate diversity that exists within the church. And perhaps tonight even, um, you've come to understand that certain things that you thought were quintessentially Catholic are in fact quintessentially Catholic of the Roman rite, but not perhaps of all of the Catholic church. When we pray at mass for persecuted Christians, especially those in Eastern Europe or in the Middle East, just remember it's mostly Eastern Catholics and Eastern Orthodox that you're praying for in that situation. Um, I think it also helps you, a better understanding of these churches helps you understand the niceties of the use of terms like Catholic and Orthodox, that indeed everyone here should see themselves as both Catholic and Orthodox, whether you have a capital C or small O, depending, right? Um, lastly, if it's right to say that the separation of the Western and Eastern churches, Roman and Byzantine, was the greatest and saddest disaster ever to befall Christianity in 1054, then dare we say that the rediscovery and restoration of communion between these churches will also be the happiest day in the church since Pentecost. Um, and that we should have great hope for um, and indeed pray for. Um, so hopefully by 2054, when we're having this conversation on the, on the porch out here at, at Villa McCree, we'll be talking about a reunification. So... With that, I just want to thank you all for your attention tonight and your interest in, these, um, in this important topic, and I look forward to hearing um, the fruit of your conversation at table. So thank you very much. If someone wanted to read more about the East, or, yeah, Eastern oh churches, gosh. would you have any, like, saints? Well, I do. Thank you for that. Oh, my gosh, I didn't even, like, pay you $5 for that. So actually, there are a couple good books. Um, this is a book by Father George Appleyard um, called Light of the East, A Guide to Eastern Catholicism for Western Catholics. Um, I get no benefits or royalties for promoting these books, by the way. So, um, But he is a priest of the Ukrainian Catholic Eparchy of St. Josephat in Parma, Ohio, outside of Cleveland. So he's, that's one of the other East um, Ukrainian Catholic um, dioceses or eparchies in the United States. But he's a priest, and he wrote this book specifically for Roman Catholics, Western Catholics, to get a better sense of the, their Eastern brothers and sisters. Okay, um, So this is a really good book. goes through like all the differences and stuff. Um, and then I also have a book here that's by... Um, this guy who's a deacon, I believe he's a archdeacon of the Ukrainian Catholic Church or Melkite, Melkite Catholic Church. So that's a Byzantine Rite Church um, that would be like Lebanon, Syria, that area of the world, so more Arabic speaking. And he wrote this book called Eastern Christianity, the Byzantine Tradition. Also really good, very readable. Neither of these books are really like uber scholarly where you feel like you have to have a degree in liturgy before you understand it, right? So, um, so these two are really good. I will say though... Um,
again, like going back to my top analogy, like you really, it's hard to read. Like you can read only so much. You really have to go and experience and like let the liturgy wash over you. Um, so I would really encourage anyone and everyone here to come and visit, like come and see at St. Michael's. Um, the Ukrainian Byzantine Parish is in Mishawaka. Um, if you um, know where Jordan Auto is, Jordan Toyota, um, like Jefferson and Cedar, it's just south of it on Cedar, basically Cedar and Lawrence Street. Divine Liturgy is Sunday morning at 10 a.m. If all of you come, oh, it will like completely overwhelm the church, um, and like there will be people everywhere. Like, yeah, um, but um, the church maybe seats packed a hundred people, packed, and the parishioners are maybe about like fifty or sixty people. So on a given Sunday, so I will tell you, come. And if we have to, st- like, if we have to shove people into the choir loft and everywhere else, hey, that's a great problem to have. So anyway, Sunday Divine Liturgy, 10 a.m., that is Sunday Mass fulfills your obligation. You can receive the sacraments there. Um, bring your cough drops. Be ready to sing. We all jump in. 